The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, would you pray with me? Creator God, we're grateful to be gathered in this space with this company of believers. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to be with us and guide us, speak to us as you have been. God, that you would give us a glimpse of who you are and what you are up to in our lives and the lives of our family, our friends, and in our world. God, that you would continue to expand our minds and our hearts with who you are and what you're doing, what you're up to in the world. And God, that you would give us the courage to trust in you and all that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ so we can live open-handedly. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you as we join with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to take a quick poll this morning. Uh, How many of you, like me, uh, grew up going to church, being part of a local church? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, that's a a pretty good good group. Congratulations, you made it. Um, I grew up going to churches in uh, southern Mississippi, and then later in Atlanta when our family moved. I spent my elementary school years in Mississippi, then my junior and high school years in Atlanta. And I was in, I grew up in this movement of churches, the restoration movements, particularly um, what are called Churches of Christ. And I am so grateful for being a part of that and being born into that in so many ways. But in so many other ways, that is a strange group of people to be a part of. Uh, They like to call it peculiar, and they thought that was good. But I just called it strange. Uh, but that's where I went to camp and all the people that I know and our family members. And, and if you grow up in church, like some of you grew up in church, uh, you have all of these experiences having grown up there. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. And as I've gotten older, I'm so grateful for all of the people who poured into me as a kid and taught me the scriptures and taught me to love Jesus But the flip side of that is that as I've grown older, there's just a bunch of stuff that like a lot of things in life that I've had to unlearn, that they tried to teach me and I had to unlearn. So it's like if you've ever played golf, like you go out and get your golf clubs and you go to the range and you've seen people swing the golf club and you hit it sometimes and sometimes you don't. And eventually you start uh, playing golf like on a course and then you realize it takes a lot of time, energy and money to be very mediocre at golf. And at that point, you get tempted to say, maybe I should take a lesson. And you take a lesson and your swing coach tells you, uh, you're doing it all wrong. And you're like, but I hit the ball sometimes. Like, you can't be all wrong. And, And there's this process that you have to go through of kind of unlearning some of the things that you learned when you were first off. And so, so as much of my heritage that I grew up with, the things that I was taught as a kid have been a blessing to me, there have been some things that I had to unlearn. And so one of the things is that my, my group, the group that I came up in, um, that I still love and tra- cherish and participate in so many things with, they had at that time this real conviction that they were the only people going to heaven when it was all over. So if you were in a church of Christ and you did the right things, what we call the five acts of worship, um, if you did those things right, you were in. If you were Baptist, you were out. 
I know this because my dad grew up Baptist and my mom grew up in Churches of Christ and that was always a great conversation at Thanksgiving. (laughs) But underneath all of that was this deep concern to protect us from things that would keep us from flourishing, would keep us from having the life that God intended for us to have. And it was misguided at some points, but in some ways it was really good. And as I look back over the train of my life, what I realized is there were a lot of moments where really good people did things that they thought were really godly and thought things they thought were really godly and said things they thought were really godly, but they were really just intended to protect us. Right? And they didn't really know what they were trying to protect us from. So when I was about 15, one summer, we had some interns. We always had interns come and work with our youth group in the summer. And a couple of our interns had this idea, like, why don't we get all of the junior high and high school kids and we'll go to downtown Atlanta, that's where we were living at the time, and we'll feed the homeless. And that sounds like a really great thing. So we spent the afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, making these sandwiches to go feed the homeless. But as we were doing that, there was this group of parents who were meeting with um, our youth pastor and some other people because they were really scared about us going to downtown Atlanta to feed homeless people. Just these vans of teenagers getting out in the middle of the city and going to these tent cities to feed homeless people. And as crazy as that sounded to me then, like, oh, they just didn't want, you know, us around people who were going to be, you know, they didn't care about the gospel. They didn't care about feeding people. Underneath all of that was this concern just to protect us, to keep us safe. And the same thing happened a couple of years later. There were a group of people who got together in Atlanta and said, we need to be serious about doing ministry in the inner city and doing some urban ministry. And I couldn't believe at the time how many people were so worried about that. But what they wanted to do was protect us. And what I know now that I couldn't have known then is that while there are some things in the world that we genuinely should protect ourselves from, that we should genuinely be on guard against and guard our children against, that this sort of untethered protectionism, that's really natural to the human condition. That this instinct that we have to make sure that we are safe and the people that we love are safe, that that becomes twisted and toxic because it can so easily lead us into living life and seeing the world through the lens of everything that we're against. Because what's endemic to the idea is that there's something worth preserving that's being attacked and we have to protect ourselves from it. And so we've been talking, Ecclesia, for the last couple of weeks. You've heard from Wayne and from Chris and from me about what it means to be people of hope and, and to live in hope. And you don't need to go very far. You can just get on your phone or get on your tablet, your computer, to see pretty easily. There, there are a lot of things in the world right now that it feels like we need protection from. But as I flip through the scriptures and read the accounts of Jesus' life, those four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us what Jesus said and what Jesus did, Jesus always seems to be for things, not against things. That Jesus' fundamental orientation to the world 
is to be four people. And, and this is why all of those people that ran in the other direction when religious people came flocked to Jesus. Because when Jesus showed up, here was someone who was for them. And so I don't know about you, but when I read those accounts of Jesus's life, what that tells me is that if I'm going to align my life with who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what Jesus taught, that means that I have to live a life that is for people and not against people. And further, when I read through the Gospels, when I read through the New Testament, I find this, that people of hope, people who live in hope, who hang on to a living hope, they don't have anything to protect. So if you've been following the news the last couple of weeks, you know that there has been uh, governmental corruption and violence all throughout Central America, and that there are thousands of people, um, some who have been victims of this violence, who are fleeing Central America, uh, seeking amnesty. And so when we see that as a church, what, what we see is not a position or a potential policy. What we see are women and children and men who are made in the image of God, and we see that they need food, they need care. And, and so a team of Ecclesia led by, from Ecclesia led by Chris uh, spent a good part of this past week in Mexico visiting with and talking with and feeding people on, in the migrant caravan. And I gotta tell you the truth, I don't know that migrant is the right word, and I don't know that caravan is the right word, I know when the Bible talks about that population of people, the scriptures use words like stranger and refugee. And there's a direct call for people of Christ and how we engage with the stranger and the refugee. And so while they were there, Chris and some of our team uh, filmed this little video about what they saw that I want you to see. So as we talk about hope, one of the things we don't want to forget or we don't want to just pass over is this idea that hope really does respond. Because there, there's a way of talking about and thinking about hope that, that seems often very ethereal and, and untouchable. That it's just something you think or it's something you feel, very sentimental. But hope has true, real, and tangible value in the world that you and I inhabit. And, and it does for a reason. Because the baseline the baseline of the world that we live in is what the Apostle Paul calls groaning. So one of the things that most people don't know about me is I went to college. I actually went to college on a music scholarship. So I, I played jazz. My dad was a band director for a lot of his career. And so music was always a part of our, our family and part of our life. And if you're playing jazz, and I suppose in other forms of music too, what, what you do as you build music, as you construct music, is you build from the bottom up that there's this baseline to all of music that's always there. And sometimes you don't even hear it, but you feel it. 
So, so Rich, Rich Mullins, who was a Christian singer who died um, maybe about 20 years ago, had a guy come up, to, come up to him after a concert and he says, oh yeah, I love this song that you sing. And like right at this one part, I always feel the presence of God. And Rich says, that's not the presence of God. Uh, that's when the bass line kicks in. <laughs> it's always there. But the, the bass line of our world is what Paul calls groaning. And you know this already, that as many beautiful and joyful things in our world, that at the bottom of it, the thing that's there is groaning, that there is a fundamental brokenness to life, and that no matter who you are, how smart or educated or wealthy, that you will experience that brokenness. And into that world, of groaning. Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has created a people whose eternity is rooted in resurrection to be people of hope. That, that death doesn't win in the end, that life wins, that you right now are living and you will never stop living. So when Paul talks about this to the church in Rome in chapter 8 of Romans, this is the way that he talks about it. He says, now I'm sure of this. The suffering we endure now are not even worth comparing to the glory that is coming and will be revealed in us. That, that we are enduring suffering. That everybody endures suffering. That you, you, one of the things that is inescapable in your experience and my experience of everyone you know is that there is suffering. But... The suffering that we experience isn't even worth comparing to the glory that's coming and will be revealed in us that every day that you draw breath, that more of the glory of God is being revealed in you. This is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians as we move from glory to glory. For all of creation is waiting, yearning for the time when the children of God will be revealed. All of creation. And because we're so busy, and we've got wives and husbands and kids and work and traffic and all of those things, that it comes very easy to think that your relationship with God is about your relationship with God. That what God is ultimately up to in the world is getting these individual souls from one part of the ledger to the other part of the ledger. And that's part of what God is doing. But what God is up to is to release all of creation. And that, that means the people you work with. That means the people you don't like. That means when you walk outside your front door and you see the trees and the grass when you are in the West Texas desert or in the most beautiful scenes in the south of Spain, that God is redeeming all of it, and all of it is waiting. And waiting for what? For the children of God to be revealed. And, and that's, why, that's why when I pray, I pray that God help us partner with him for the preferred future for all of creation. Because what God is doing in the world is universal. 
And it is such a diminishment of who God is to think that what God is doing in the world is just about you. And God is deeply concerned about you. But he's also deeply concerned about people in Nicaragua and Venezuela and South America in Europe, in Asia, that we all stand equal at the foot of the cross. And to be a person is to know that God is releasing all of it, all of creation, as much as he is releasing you. You see, all of creation has collapsed into emptiness, Paul says, not by its own choosing, but by God's. Still, he placed within it a deep and abiding hope. And so I don't want you to be confused. It's not like God looks at creation and just sprinkles some some hope juice on it. When Paul says, when, when Paul says he's placed within it a deep and abiding hope, what Paul means is he's placed in it people who abide in hope. He's placed you in it. Romans is a letter about the church, about the followers of Jesus. And he says that creation would one day be liberated from its slavery to corruption and experience the glorious freedom of the children of God. And what are the children of God freed from? They're freed from death. See, part of the thing that my church, when I was little, didn't tell me is that they told me that the biggest problem, the existential problem in the world, was sin. And that's not actually true. The biggest problem, your problem, my problem, our biggest problem is death. And through Jesus, death has been defeated. What you get from sin is death. That's the problem. But we are people of hope because we do not fear death. For we all know, Paul says, that all creation groans in unison with birthing pains up until now. And there is more. It's not just creation. All of us are groaning together too. Though we have already tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, we are longing for the total redemption of our bodies that comes with our adoption as children of God is complete. For we have been saved in this hope and for this future. But hope does not involve what we already have or see. For who goes around hoping for what he already has? So this is the sticky point with hope. I'm going to explain our existence. You are going to die. And then it's going to be over. And if you live in a world that believes that you're going to die, and then it's just going to be over, why would you hope? But because the problem is death, that Jesus' death on the cross conquers hope, that now you no longer will die and that be it. Now you will continue to live, that you are living and you will never stop living. And that is why we live with hope, because you are an eternal creature. You are made to be an eternal creature. And part of being that eternal creature 
is being the kind of woman, the kind of man who brings hope wherever you go. But Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is waiting, which no one wants to do. No one likes to wait. About 15 years ago when I was pastoring another church here in town, one of our uh, church leader's wife was very much looking forward to his retirement. (laughs) He had been an executive at a large oil and gas company, I think the number four man in the company, and they had moved all over the country and all over the world. And their plan was that when he retired and he wouldn't have that crazy schedule anymore, they were going to build a big house up on the lake and enjoy their retirement together. Well, he retired, they started on their house, and she was diagnosed with cancer. And not long after they moved into their house, I went up and visited with them at this beautiful, enormous home that they had just constructed that was going to be their reward for all of their work. And we talked, I talked with him for a little bit about what he was doing. And I asked her, I said, well, Beverly, how are you spending your days? And she said, waiting. Waiting. But when Paul talks about waiting, he's not talking about waiting like we think of waiting. It's not like waiting when you go to the doctor's office and you go to the waiting room. And then they call your name and they put you in that smaller waiting room with worse magazines. That this is a waiting that is actively engaged in what God is doing. Because part of your job, part of my job is participating with what God is doing in the world as he is revealing the children of God and bringing creation into glory. That God is doing something cosmic in the world and his children get to be a part of what God is doing. So wherever you go into all of those broken and dark places, that children of hope, the people of hope, bring God's light and God's beauty into those places. It's kind of a caffeinated hope, the kind of hope that wakes up every day with energy and vitality that pushes you forward into something. It's not waiting around like you're just wanting something to happen. It's the kind of waiting that leans into the redemption of all things. And this is what hope is. That God is redeeming all things. And yes, God is redeeming you, but God is redeeming all of creation, and you get to participate in that redemption. So what are the places in your life where you can be a vessel of grace and redemption? Where are the people in your life? What are the systems in your life? where you enter into and you bring hope into the darkness. Because here's the good news. You are living and you will never stop living. And if I could rewind the clock on my life, I would like to tell all of those people in the churches where I grew up, you don't have to protect me because I have nothing to lose. I have nothing I can lose. Later in Romans 8, 
Paul says, what can separate you from the love of God? Height, depths, death. And he goes on and on. And the answer is obvious when he asks the first question. Absolutely nothing. And because we are people of hope who cannot be separated from the love of God, we never have anything to fear nor anything to protect. Hope secures our eternity through Jesus Christ. And so as Paul keeps writing and writing and writing to the church in Rome, by the time he gets to chapter 12, he tells them this is how you deal with people, both people you like, people you don't like. You pray for them, you love them, you take care of them, whatever it is, whoever you encounter. People aren't a policy, people aren't an agenda. This is how you deal with people. And if you do this, you're going to get tired. (laughs) And finally in Romans 12, Paul says this, Never let evil get the best of you. Instead, overpower evil with the good. That's what it means to be a people of hope. It's to people who in the lives of other people are for them and for the good. Who live for other people who breathe goodness into the lives of other people, who can enter into the world open-handedly because God has been good to us and called us to bring good to others. So one of my favorite writers is Dallas Willard. And Dallas died a little over two years ago. And he had this to say about um, our culture and Christianity. He said, for Christians, for people who follow Jesus, our universe is a perfectly safe place to live. And so when you feel like everything is just overwhelming and you don't know what to do, that that you feel so small in a world so complicated, that your job isn't to listen to this voice on this side or this voice on this side, to make my decision based on this document or make my decision based on that idea. But to do good. And the way you overcome the evil in the world, as simple as it sounds, is to do good. And as long as there are people willing to do good, our world will never be without hope. It's my prayer for you, for us, that we become the kinds of people who bring light into darkness, who speak beauty into tragedy, and overcome evil with good. Let me pray for you. God, for your son Jesus, we give you thanks. And we ask that you would empower us through the Spirit to be people of love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, that like Jesus, when the world hears our voice, when they see us coming, they will celebrate the arrival of your goodness. And God, we celebrate that goodness because Jesus has come to us and sacrificed his life so that we could have everlasting life with you. Show us how to lean in and to trust that light, to trust that life. For all you do, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.